Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Americans think you get in car, go to happy store, see happy on shelf, buy happy, take it home, put it on shelf at home, have happiness. Yeah. That last voice you heard belongs to Jeff Zimmerman. Jeff is a New York-based stand-up comedian and storyteller, and that was an excerpt from the title track of his new album, Why You Should Be Happy. In full disclosure, I'm featuring that excerpt because I've gotten to know Jeff, I think he's good people, I think it's a good album, and I think you should go to Apple Music and buy a copy. But the excerpt also fits very well with this podcast episode. This episode is about happiness, which most of us, perhaps especially in countries such as the U.S., try to achieve and maintain and enhance. The website PublishingPerspectives.com cites an NPD report that says unit sales of self-help books grew at a compound annual growth rate of 11% over six years, reaching 18.6 million in 2019. That's a lot of self-help book purchases, likely indicating a lot of people looking for greater happiness. My guest today has thought a lot about the search for happiness. Lori Santos is a professor of psychology and head of Silliman College at Yale University. She studies cognitive capacities in non-human animals, but she's also well known for her course, Psychology and the Good Life. When she launched that course, it immediately became the most popular course in Yale's history. Since then, she's offered an online version available for free, and she is now the host of a relatively new podcast called The Happiness Lab. In those courses and in that podcast, Santos challenges human intuitions about what can produce happiness. In short, we don't always know what will make us happy and what will keep us happy. She and I discussed such issues in this episode, which is titled The Pursuit. When I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a dolphin trainer, which like definitely for, you know, part of my day job, which is studying the psychology of animals, it was really a nice fit. But I think more, I was always really, I was the annoying kid that wanted to hang out with the adults all the time yeah. know, to understand what they were doing. It wouldn't leave them alone. And so I think I was always fascinated by people yep. and always fascinated by kind of the dark side of people or like just like ways that people went wrong or the errors that we made or the injustices that we see in the world. Like those things always fascinated me. And, and I remember kind of thinking about that stuff, even at a young age, I just don't think I realized that that was a career you could have. Like dolphin trainer was like an obvious <laughs> thing, like lawyer, doctor. I didn't know like figuring out the weirdnesses of human nature was like a career that you could aspire to. And so were there any hints, uh, 
uh, there that might have foreshadowed your interest uh, in happiness? Yeah, I think that's less obvious. Um, I, I, I think in some ways the way I think about happiness was foreshadowed by the fact that I was so fascinated by human irrationality, right? Like I, I'm super into these spots where people get it wrong. Like we're supposed to be this amazing species that's like super, super smart. But in practice, we mess stuff up a lot, you know, especially in the news right now, we were messing tremendous things up a lot. Yep. And I think that was always a fascination. And so I think where the fascination with the happiness stuff comes from is that we have these strong intuitions that we use for the kinds of things we think are going to make us happy, but by and large, we're wrong. And so the happiness is just one of many domains where we have these strong intuitions about what we should do, but our intuitions are pretty crappy. And if we could just understand scientifically what the right intuitions would be, maybe that would make us a happier like species, but also maybe a healthier species and a less messed up species and all the kinds of things that we want to promote in our, in our, in the human race. And so um, having looked at your CV, I see that uh, your undergraduate degree uh, was at Harvard. Um, uh, graduated magna cum laude. Your master's degree is from Harvard. Your PhD is from Harvard. How disappointed your family must be. <laughs> uh, and then you go from Harvard, uh, you take a step down, uh, as Harvard grads might think, uh, going to take a job uh, at Yale University. Uh, again, uh, how embarrassed your parents must be. Uh, no, but congratulations on a, on a great deal of success. Um, at Yale, my understanding is uh, you're not only a faculty member, but and I may get the term wrong, but are you a director or a, 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 ma a master, such as it is, of, of one of the colleges there? Yeah, so I'm the, the term now that they use is head of college. I think yep. they realize that master <laughs> be outdated for a variety of reasons, you know? Yep. Um, but yeah, so I'm a head of Silliman College, which is one of the residential colleges at Yale. And so Yale's kind of a strange school like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard, where they have these colleges within a college. It's kind of like Hogwarts and Harry Potter, where it's like you're a member of Gryffindor and Slytherin, even though yep. you're from Hogwarts. Um, and the role really means that I'm on campus with students a lot. Like my house is in the middle of their quad on campus. Um, you know, I eat with them in the dining hall. I'm kind of seeing students in the trenches, like really up close and personal, which is a huge privilege. The students are amazing, but it taught me a lot about what college students' life was like. Are some of the roots of this course on the psychology of good life uh, in those interactions that you've had with students in that capacity? Yeah, like almost directly. Um, I mean, I was absolutely shocked when I took on this role to see how much of a mental health crisis we have among our young people today. You know, students regularly report that they're just too depressed to function or they're feeling overwhelmingly anxious. Um, the data nationally suggests that more than one in 10 students is at any given time seriously con considering suicide. So more than one in 10, which is shocking. And that was kind of what I was seeing in the trenches where students were just like anxious all the time or just overwhelmed all the time and constantly like mortgaging like their time in college for their future, you know, like, like frantically worried about a future internship or frantically worried about their grades. And it was like, just be here and be in college. And it wasn't what I remember from my time back in college at Harvard. And it, it's not like what we want our educational institutions to be like, we're kidding ourselves if we think these students are learning Chaucer and computer science when this, as the stats suggest, 60% of them are too anxious to function most days. So 
So dealing with the students directly and really seeing in the trenches what college was like made me think, I I just have to do something about this. Like, I I can't pretend like I'm teaching them a regular psychology class if we don't address this, because like all the science suggests they're not learning in the right way if we're not addressing these mental health issues. And you first taught the course in 2018? Yeah, that's right. That's actually the first and only time I've taught it. Um, you know, I, I started planning the class and in, at Yale, students don't pre-register for the class. So I thought it was going to be a new psychology class and that, you know, probably 40 or 50 kids of tops would take it. And so when it wound up becoming a quarter of the entire Yale student body, that was sort of unexpected. Um, so, so, led- so, so we're talking hundreds of students signed up. Uh, over a thousand, so twelve hundred students signed up, um, which posed a bit of a logistical challenge to find like enough like you know teaching assistants to help with the class and just where were we going to put the class? Um, we ended up teaching the class in a concert hall on campus because that was the only spot where that many students fit other than the football stadium, and so uh, it was a little bit of an interesting and very surreal ride. But but what it taught me is that students are voting with their feet, like they don't like this culture of feeling overwhelmed and anxious and and they also don't want platitudes like they they want to know evidence-based ways that they can fix stuff and so that was really kind of encouraging um it really gave me a lot of hope that they're in this to fix this culture that's kind of nasty so i don't know if i've mentioned this mentioned this um at any point but going back to i think about a decade earlier uh i have at bates college where i teach I've taught a first year seminar called Searching for the Good Life. And it's uh, the, the second half of it is focused on the psychology of good and evil, but the first half is focused on the psychology of happiness. And so I would imagine we've talked about some of the same topics uh, in our two courses. And as I think about some of the topics that have come up in my course, um, and as I imagine ones that might have uh, come up in yours, I wonder in your course, What's one topic or or perhaps one finding that comes to mind that's been particularly surprising for your students? Yeah, I think there are lots of them. And I think there are lots of them in part because many of the intuitions we have about what's going to make us happy are just wrong, which is kind of so there's a lot. But I think the one the one that they fight about with me the most, at least, um, is all the findings about the correlation between money and happiness. Yep. And so the scientific work really suggests that there is a relationship between money and happiness if you're really living below the poverty line, right? right. You know, so if, if you can't put food on your table or you can't put a roof on your head, if you're like housing is insecure and financially insecure, then getting more money is going to improve your well-being. No question about it. But once you get to like, you know, reasonably middle class or, or at least the salary levels that most of my Yale graduates are going to get, honestly, then the correlation between money and happiness goes away. Um, at least in a 2009 study at the time, it looked at that was around 75K, according to work by Angus D. and Danny Kahneman. Yep. And my students hate this. I also pair that study with a New York Times graph that showed the, the median salary of Yale students when they graduate, which is $76,000. And so I put that up and I just say, y'all are going to be fine. And at the end of that lecture, I have a huge line of students who want to fight with me about this. You know, but what if we spend it a different way? Or what if I live in San Francisco? Or, you know, what if I'm from a low-income family originally? All these things. And I think it, you know, we just have these strong intuitions that material wealth is going to work. And I feel like they're insidious for a couple of reasons, especially, you know, with the kinds of students we teach, right, who can go out and get these amazing jobs. They go out and get these jobs where they're earning a lot of money and they feel awful and they hate it. And they think, 
oh, I must not have enough money yet. Like I need even more, <laughs> like I need to kind of double down. And so I actually think that this insidious lie that our mind tells us is at the root of a lot of inequality that we face in today's culture, because even people who are doing well financially cannot believe that they have enough, right? Because they're, they're rich, but they're not happy, right? So they double down on getting more and more rich and that like skews the, you know, the financial inequality that we have and it just gets worse. And so, so I fight with them. I say, nope, you know, here, and I fight with them in an evidence-based way. I'm like, nope, here's the study that shows, okay, it bumps up a little bit in San Francisco, but not as much as you think. And so that, that is the one that they fight the most about. Well, I'm just curious about whether you have a sense of whether it's, all students who are fighting you on this or some students who are fighting you on this? Because an intuition of mine would be that students, let's say first-gen students who come from a low SES background, perhaps students of color, some of whom might come from low SES backgrounds, I would imagine that they might find it quite plausible that the people whose happiness will be most enhanced by having more money in their pocket is actually the people uh, below the poverty line because they've lived that experience. So I would be, I'd be a little more surprised if they were among the ones fighting you. I imagine that it's even if Yale, like Bates, is going to launch launch them all generally as they graduate into the potential for high paying careers. Those whose background uh, gives them that firsthand understanding of the 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 benefits of having more money when you're low income. Uh, would seem to be to be less likely to fight you. But am I wrong about that? Yeah, I should be clear. The part they're fighting me about isn't the low income side. I think everyone recognizes like if you don't have a roof over your head, you, you know, okay. you're going to be happier. I think the fight is about is there a cap on it, right? And I think even for low income students, maybe even more so for low income students, th- the data they've gotten is, you know, as they've gotten more affluent, right? Like, you know, as they see people getting more affluent, they're like, these are amazing things. And so um, the, the, I think part of it is that we build up this correlation over time, right? You know, you and I like went through a phase where we were poor graduate students. We weren't making that much money. And then, you know, we got a real faculty, you know, probably under that 75K, like way yeah, under that yeah. 75K, right? Yeah. And then you get, a, you get a real job and you're like, oh my gosh, I can go out to eat. Like I can live in an apartment without 50 roommates and that feels good. And so like, you know, our, our reward systems are figuring out, oh, wait a minute, more money means more happiness. But then we get to a point that it, it stops. And, and rather than throughout the intuition, our brain is like, we must just not have enough. Like, we really need to double down and work harder on this. And so I think, you know, the, the, the intuition comes from different spots for low-income students and for higher-income students. But I think even the low-income students have learned that, oh, my gosh, if I just got more, it would really work. It's just we don't throw out that intuition when we get to a certain point. We think it, that slope is going to go up infinitely, and that's yeah. where we're wrong. So I wonder if you know of any evidence that might speak to why that curve flattens out. And, 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 and there may be a variety of causes, but one that uh, was occurring to me, at least based on my personal experience, as you were describing, was, um, well, it, it's, it's, it's uh, sort of implied by the old uh, hip-hop song, uh, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Mm-hmm, where, mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are yeah. ways in which as I've gotten, as I move beyond being a graduate student, yes, I have more money in my pocket, but I'm sitting on more committees. I'm chairing more committees. I've got more responsibilities, many of which uh, introduce um, stress. And at this time in our nation's history, I hesitate to complain about my stresses, given that many Americans are unemployed. Uh, but 
as one moves into positions that bring more income, there are also perhaps uh, other adverse experiences and frustrations that one might not forecast that will tend to flatten that curve. Is there evidence that you know of that speaks to the veracity of that idea? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think there's a lot at play there. I think you know some of the things you haven't mentioned are that you know just generally we get used to stuff. So you know the things that brought us pleasure when we first got money, you know, going out to eat that stops being pleasurable once you're used to it. Yep. Um, your social comparisons change. You know, so as we become tenured professors, we meet even richer tenured professors and richer you know football like coaches and all these things. <laughs> but but I think the one that you're on the sort of more money, more problems idea is is nicely encapsulated by the research of folks like Ashley Willens, who finds that you know, as you get more money, you tend to get less time. Like in mm-hmm. general, there's this kind of trade-off, you know, as you get a busier and busier work schedule, you're often putting in more time at work. And she finds that time famine, like this subjective feeling that you don't have time is a huge hit on well-being. And actually in some of the Gallup data that she talks about in one of her papers, she finds that feeling very time famished is as big a hit on your well-being as being unemployed. And so the odd thing is that like, as we're kind of in it, as we're craving more and more money, we end up kind of ending up, we end up in this bargain that might not be helping our well-being, where we end up giving up time to get money. And then we end up just as unhappy as, you know, if we were in really dire straits, like being unemployed, according to her data. We haven't talked about the distinction between at least two different kinds of happiness. And early in your podcast uh, series, um, you drew a distinction between what you referred to um, as happiness in your life versus happiness with your life. Yeah, this is a distinction that Sonia Lubomirsky uses, this idea that um, happiness is kind of has two parts, right? It's sort of being happy in your life, which is kind of your positive emotions and kind of an absence of negative emotions. But then there's separately being happy with your life, which is kind of your life satisfaction, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? And so, and both of those tend to have this cap um, as you move up the income or wealth ladder? Yeah, it kind of depends. So the, the, the wealth ladder kind of depends on how I'm surveying you, right? So if I just generally ask you if you're satisfied with your life, you know, that hangs a little bit with the kind of same cutoff that we've seen. But if I ask you to reflect on your ladder in life, you know, given your salary, where do you stand relative to other people? Then all of a sudden, Kahneman and Deaton's data suggest wealth isn't capped, right? Like as you get richer, you know, so if you're a billionaire and I ask you, you how are things going in your life? You're like, oh, I'm stressed, more money, more problems. You know, are you satisfied with your life? Like, no, I don't have a big house as my neighbor. And I say, all things considered with your wealth level, you know, if there was a ladder, you know, where would you be in life? You're like, well, I'm a billionaire, man. Like I'm pretty high on that ladder. And so their, their data reflect the fact that, you know, it's a little bit different within your life and with your life, but even the with your life part, even life satisfaction doesn't necessarily go up as much as we think with much higher salaries. And so on that note, I want to connect our discussion to the central focus of my podcast, which is politics and policy. And I wonder if you would agree that a policy implication of this uh, curvilinear relationship where as you move up the income or wealth ladder, 
you reach a point of diminishing marginal gains. So it tends to flatten out uh, or it uh, doesn't increase as much as one might expect and doesn't increase as much as it does on the low end. I wonder if you would agree that a policy implication of that is that it makes a case for uh, income and wealth redistribution uh, to move income and wealth out of the pockets of those at the highest levels and into the pockets of those whose happiness will be more substantially boosted by that income or that wealth. Yeah, I mean, I agree completely with that notion. Um, I'm very taken by a lot of the work by like Anand Jirahadis and a lot of folks who are arguing that like, it might just be both morally bankrupt and just kind of at odds with our goals of making everyone satisfied with their life to have like billionaires. Um, I, I heard one, one tweet recently where someone said, you know, once you get to a billion dollars, you just have to give the rest of it away. And you get an award that say, hey, you won capitalism, congratulations, and you can put the <laughs> award on your wall, but then you just don't get to have any more money. Um, I mean, I think that there's real power to that for, for a couple reasons. One is, as you mentioned, the, the hit on people who are at low incomes, like small amounts of money can make their life a lot better, right? The second reason is that people have hypotheses about what would make for a good distribution of wealth, not just like how much wealth they themselves should have, but what an income distribution should look like. This is some work by Dan Ariely and Mike Norton. And what they find is that like people basically want like income distributions to look like Sweden. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they, they, they claim they would be happiest if it looks like that. But the worst thing is this is another spot where our minds lie to us. People have a really messed up notion of what income distribution looks like in the U S right now. Like they think it's way more even than it actually is. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a wonderful, uh, I think a, one of the news shows that covered this work did a, this neat little kind of intervention where they had different pies and they said, cut up the pies for like how much the top 5% has and all this stuff. And like the, the, the bottom percentiles like basically have crumbs. Like you can't even put like a slice of pie. It's so small. And we have no idea when we, when we think of what income really looks like, we have no idea it's as unequal as it is, but the data really suggests that more unequal nations really get a happiness hit again, not, because of their income, but because of the inequality in income. So yep. I think there's a huge case to be made that well-being could be boosted for most people, maybe even including the billionaires, if we yep. actually redistributed wealth. Yeah. I am going on a, on a bit of a limb here because I haven't looked at this work in a while, but I seem to recall that, um, I don't know if it's Sindel, Melanathan, or Malayanathan, but uh, he and colleagues have done work on the psychology of poverty uh, showing the ways in which struggling to make ends meet uh, when you have very little money in your pocket creates its own stressors and its own sort of um, demands on your attention uh, and your mental life. And, and and I see it in a way as perhaps paralleling the notion of a time famine you mentioned on higher income levels. There may also be sort of attentional deficits uh, or, or, or at least feelings of stress that come on, on the low end of, of income and wealth as well, uh, which further bolsters the case for finding ways to get more money in their pocket. Yeah, I mean, poverty isn't just a well-being hit. It's really a health hit, right? You know, if we solved poverty a lot of the money we use to solve poverty might be savings that we get just from like healthcare costs and stress associated with the, with folks being poor. Right. So I think, you know, there are huge, there are lots of um, reasons I think that redistribution works really well for well-being. problem is it activates our unfairness, but it do, does that in ways that doesn't make sense. Cause like we actually, 
we don't realize it's as unfair as it is. When people really see what the income distributions really are, their instinct is like, wait a minute, I didn't know it was like that. <laughs> like We should really switch it up if it's like that. Going back to your course, I wonder if you talk about any of the work that uh, Sheena Iyengar and Barry Schwartz and others have done on the impact of having more choices on uh, one's happiness or one's satisfaction with the choices one makes. Yeah, we actually did a whole podcast episode on some of this work, which I think is profound because I think this is another spot where our mind gets it wrong and modern culture is like really messing us up, right? Yeah. Um, where we, we believe that, you know, freedom is a good thing and freedom involves lots of choices, but in practice, we'd be much better off if we had less choices rather than more. And, you know, so much of our society is built on like more choices, more stuff, more, 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 you know, and and we get it wrong, you know, and and it makes sense. Like if you offered me a Netflix that had 10 movies, I probably wouldn't want to pay as much for that as a Netflix that had seemingly infinite movies. But actually, if you look at my well-being, I'd probably be way happier with the 10 movies than... I, I almost experienced this sometimes on planes where it's like, you know, it used to be that there was like the movie on the plane and there was just like one movie and whatever it was, you're like, all right, I'm just going to watch that movie because I don't feel like writing this grant that I was supposed to write. Right. Yeah. And now when there's like the infinite movies that you can scroll through, sometimes like, oh, I can't even deal with this. And I, I go back and, you know, just write the grant because it's like too overwhelming. And so, you know, Iyengar and, and Barry Schwartz, they find things that more choices make people less happy, but more choices also make people opt out more. But yep. They don't even jump in and do it. I think Shorts has some data that uh, pe- when you have too many choices in someone's 401k plan, it makes them like just not pick one, which which ends up like horribly affecting savings. Like, and so you know it can even be kind of messing us up in these other domains that are beyond like you know which movie should I watch? Like, it can, can cause like these huge problems. Although to be clear, I don't see uh, Shorts and colleague and Iyengar and colleagues' work as implying that we'd be happiest with just with no choice. That is, it's not that we would want Netflix to only offer one movie, but rather we overestimate the extent to which happiness is going to increase as we get more options and past a certain point, happiness can decline with more options. Is that that right? Yeah. I kind of, I kind of tried to get Barry going on like how many, and he was like, I don't know, like, but somewhere (laughs) between like 10 and like net, you know, like it's not Netflix. Right. And so I, I think there's also, in different domains, like a lot of cost to these choices. Um, you know, I, I did I did an interview with folks in the medical profession who've watched uh, the kind of changes in people's well-being as we've gotten more freedom in our medical choices. You know, before yep. if you had an awful medical diagnosis, your doctor would just tell you, look, this is the cancer treatment you're going to get. But now it's kind of patient knows best. Yep. And that does two things. One is it means that people with the least information are often choosing between these different treatments. But also, no matter what happens, you have the kind of guilt that you were the one who picked that, right? And that yep. that can kind of make for not a great thing. So it's, it's not just in the domain of like Netflix movies and how many pairs of jeans you're going to choose between. Like this has infiltrated a lot of the bigger decisions that we're making, um, which can have really bad consequences. When I talk about these ideas with my students, they are skeptical when I ask them to explore uh, the implications for their own lives. So when I tell them, by this logic, perhaps around, I think we offer them approximately 40 major choices uh, here at Bates. Plus, they, of course, have the option, if they don't like those, to design their own major. And so I say, maybe you'd be happier if we actually gave you fewer ma- cho- majors to choose from. And they hate that idea. I wonder if your students uh, at Yale fight you uh, on that as well. No, no, exactly the same. You know, another one that I bring up with them is, uh, 
you know, like before you were kind of limited in who you were going to date to like, you know, who is in your classes or who are you in your dorm. Now you have Tinder and you see like, you know, if they're in New Haven, Connecticut, they see all the people in New York City. Like maybe that's overwhelming. And they're like, no, <laughs> like I'd rather have Tinder and all those choices than not. And so, but I think that this, this is like the whole basis of, of the way I think about my class, but also the way I think about this podcast, which is like, we have these systematic intuitions that lead our own behavior astray, but they don't just lead our own behavior astray. Like we're designing systems and structures and cultures and apps based on these intuitions about what we need to be happy. And so we're systematically building structures that are going to make people less happy rather than more. And that sucks. <laughs> I wish yeah. we could do it. And I think understanding why our intuitions go astray hopefully can help people do better. So your reference, uh, at least loosely speaking, to restructuring reminds me that, uh, again, at the podcast, I saw a reference to, or, oh, no, I'm sorry, in your syllabus for your Coursera course, I saw a reference to rewirement. What is rewirement? Yeah, well, rewirement is like actually just a dorky professor term that I came up with. I was. Uh, oh, I know, I know, I know. The course, the course has its normal course requirements, like a midterm and a final paper. Uh, Yale wouldn't let me use kind of positive habits as part of the requirements. In other words, I yeah. couldn't make students meditate for a grade. And so I came up with this other term that Yale did me, let me use, which was course rewirements, which I took to be kind of practices that rewire students' habits. And, you know, while it was kind of a stupid play on course requirements, I think it's also a powerful word because it shows that by engaging in these behaviors that violate our intuitions, we can start to learn whether these practices that we didn't think would make us happy are actually working better than we think. You know, we can engage with the task of doing random acts of kindness for people. We can engage with the task of trying to like pay attention and savor a little bit more very intentionally. And we can try to look at like, wait, hang on, did that make me feel better versus worse? And the hope is that if you do that enough, you know, as we know from the habit formation literature, maybe that can help you form habits that are a little healthier over time. So Daniel Allen uh, wrote a book uh, called Our Declaration. It's about uh, the Declaration of Independence. And I first learned of the book because she came to speak at Bates uh, about it. And uh, I happened to be teaching my first year seminar, and so I uh, was encouraged, uh, since that book was the common reading for our incoming class, to engage them uh, on the text. And early in the book, uh, she notes that, in her words, freedom and equality are necessary for affecting our safety uh, and our happiness. And she suggests that, oh, actually, it's not just her, uh, the Declaration of Independence uh, suggests that uh, government has a role to play in guaranteeing our safety and at least the conditions under which we can uh, pursue happiness. And if that's right, it would suggest that happiness is in part a function of factors other than our genetic endowment, factors other than our individual choices. It's in part, a our happiness is in part a function uh, of governmental policy. And that seems to me to suggest that as important as rewirements might be, there are limits on how much my efforts to rewire how I think about happiness will actually uh, boost my happiness. I, uh, 
I wonder if you would agree with that notion that our happiness is not only a function of the kinds of choices that we might make to try to learn to savor more, uh, to uh, find ways perhaps to limit our number of choices, but also it's a function of uh, conditions set by our government. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that absolutely and completely. Um, we uh, on an upcoming season of our podcast, uh, we have an interview coming up with Dan Butner, who wrote a book called Blue Zones. Um, so these are about the happiest spots in the world, and what he finds is that it's not like individual people who like read a self help book who like are happier no. and they're writing in their gratitude journal. It's that you know they have features of their society that allow them to like take walks outside. You know, there's more equality, there's more social connection, but it's not it, people's individual behaviors. It's like the structure of society, both the norms that society sets, so kind of psychologically what the structures are, but also the structures that government gives. And he's pretty harsh on my podcast where he was basically like, you know, you could take those rewirements and shove them because like if your society doesn't have it, those might work for the like six weeks that the kids are in your class. But what evidence is there that that's going to lead to lasting behavior change? And so I totally see that point. I guess the one spot where I'll differ is that I think these things, I think there's like a reciprocal relationship with these kinds of things. So for sure, it's easier to engage in some of these behaviors if the structures are right. But also, I think, you know, a lot of us, unfortunately, live in spots where the structures kind of suck, right? I mean, I think even especially more so right now, where I think this crisis is kind of causing us to like open up the Pandora's box to realize all these spots where things suck. And to engage with the structures and to have that fight to make them better, we also need a little resilience, you know, like if we're like one of these, you know, what I worry a lot about with these mental health structures is that, you know, 40% of my students are too depressed to function and 60% are overwhelmingly anxious. You know, they're not going to solve climate change. They're not going to solve racial violence. They're not going to fix all the structures that there are left to them. And so I worry that like the, the hope is that kind of focusing on some of these individual behaviors won't solve everything for sure, but it can kind of give people a little mini boost of resilience that can help them on the path to fixing the structure. So, so I actually think it, it's like a reciprocal relationship. Like it's much easier to engage in the positive behaviors if the structures are better and definitely we're going to need to fix the structures if we want to see change, but like fixing the structures is hard. So whatever like kind of buffer we can get to kind of give people the resilience they need to do that is probably going to help too. That's really helpful for me because I confess that prior to hearing your answer, I had simply thought of individual efforts to boost one's happiness and the kind of collective action that, if fruitful, if fruitful could change the governmental structures in ways that enhance happiness en masse. I had thought of those two, individual efforts and collective action as separate from one another. But you're making a persuasive case that they're more interrelated. And I'm particularly struck by the now obvious uh, notion, uh, but it wasn't obvious to me before, but to me before, but the now obvious notion that effectively participating in collective action requires resilience and happiness can actually uh, contribute to that sense of resilience. Yeah, and I'll give I'll give just two specific examples where I think it can help. So one is in the domain of like gratitude. Again, like I often use this gratitude, like scribbling three things in your gratitude journal is not going to stop, say, the culture of racial violence, right? right. Given. But the flip side is there's work by folks like Dave DeSteno showing that 
gratitude because it's a pro-social emotion can actually help with self-regulation, right? It can help with this practice of kind of holding back on things you want to do. Like people, when, when in his studies, when he kind of gets people to experience more gratitude, they actually diet better. They actually save more in these kind of economic games. Like it's kind of making us do the stuff that sucks and is hard to do. And, you know, again, solving these big collective action problems are really like pro-social problems, right? Where we have to kind of give of ourselves to kind of help other folks. So that's kind of one domain, but, but an even bigger one is the domain of kind of threat. You know, if I think of a lot of the collective action problems that are at least, I don't know when this is going to come out, but at least very salient to me this week with what's going on in the news, right? Like it requires not just marginalized groups to take action, but folks who are allies to take action. Like what prevents that? And I think one of the things that prevents that is like threat, right? Like people are worried that they're not going to do it right and they feel threatened and they want their identity to be buffered. And that sucks. Like it leads to all these kinds of problems down the line, but kind of building up resilience, kind of having these tools to regulate your anxiety, having these tools to regulate mindfulness, like, and kind of noticing like, Ooh, I'm under threat. Like maybe I need to regulate that. Like those are going to be powerful tools that give people the skills they need to engage in the collective action down the line. So those are just two examples where I see like specific practices, say gratitude, increasing gratitude or promoting mindfulness and meditation that could actually be powerful ones for these bigger crises. But, um, but, but it's true, but, but many people hear my class or see the word rewirement and think, you don't care about structural changes. I'm like, no, really into structural changes. Like I actually had a student who wrote a, a kind of nasty article about the class in the Yale Daily newspaper that said, you know, how complicit I was in these bigger structures that, you know, like preaching that we all have our own individual action and we should all be doing our own work kind of misses out on the fact that it's, you know, many people are privileged to do that where many people are not. Right. Yep. And, and, and I kind of wrote, I'm like, dude, I'm with you. <laughs> like, you yeah. just like read to, you know, did you take the class or, you know, so I, so I think that, that come, that critique comes up a lot, but I think there's ways that this intersection could be more powerful. What's, what's your reaction to what I would offer as the, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, counter example where there's this, at least in, in one uh, Atlantic article I read, there's this view of Abraham Lincoln, uh, this, celebrated uh, leader whom many, I think, given the challenges that he faced and that our country faced uh, uh, under his uh, leadership, must have been resilient and was highly effective. But uh, people, uh, his contemporaries, uh, portrayed him in ways that make him sound as if he suffered with lifelong uh, depression. So that would seem to me to suggest, uh, if their uh, armchair analysis is correct, that happiness is not necessary for the kind of resilience that you're describing. Yeah, I think, I think for sure it's not necessary, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who achieve a lot of amazing stuff who are kind of, you know, not such happy people. They're kind of gripey, you know, yep. folks. and I didn't know Abraham Lincoln, but you know, I trust he, he seemed like he might've been like that. Right. Um, but the flip side is like, you know, imagine what else he could have done, you know, if he was doing a gratitude journal every day, you know, like that sounds a little flippant, but like, imagine if he got tools to kind of regulate that stuff. And it's surprising, you know, we often think that, you know, we need to fix the structural problems and, you know, get all the circumstances right, and then we'll be happier. But the data suggests the causal arrow might go the other way. You know, there's data suggesting that when you're in a positive mood, you end up being more creative. There's data suggesting that happier people wind up earning a higher salary, right? So now that happiness is correlated with salary, but your happiness at 18 or your positive mood at 18 might correlate with your salary at 30 
Um, you know, so there's there's uh, data suggesting that uh, po- like happier mooded people vote more progressively. This is some work um, coming out uh, just recently about voting behavior, right? And so, you know, we like they're definitely counterexamples, and I think of course they're going to be counterexamples because like if you're in the trenches dealing with like you know, like, like big civil rights problems, like shutting down slavery, basically, like it's going to be rough and you're probably not going to be in the like awesomest of moods all the time. But the key is that like, if we build in skills that can allow you to do that, you know, there are hints in the data that it might make it easier, you know, just easier to solve these self-regulation problems um, and just maybe uh, happier while you're doing it. Um, So Well, your your suggestion that Abraham Lincoln, as effective as he was, might have been even more effective if he were happier, perhaps if he kept a a gratitude journal, reminds me of this film I just looked up, uh, this 2012 action comedy, uh, Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies. Um, (laughs) So maybe the, the, the one thing that was preventing Lincoln from actually in real life, uh, fighting off zombies was he just wasn't happy enough. And so that's the kind of accomplishment he could have unlocked if he'd been a little happier, but, but I'm sorry. Thing is like, there, there are lots of, there are lots of, there are accomplishments that are, you know, like for society and for countries, but there are also accomplishments that are just personal. Um, you know, one of the folks we interview in the happiness lab, uh, is this guy, Bill Irvine, who has a book called the stoic challenge. So he, he pulls a lot of work out of like these old stoic tendencies where our goal isn't just to like do something. Well, our goal is to, to like also not be completely miserable while we're doing it, right? And so if we have a choice like of achieving as much as we could achieve and not being miserable, like why don't we go with that? And you know, his point is that through some of these individual actions, those things are in control more than we think. You know, we don't have to go through bad circumstances, even as yucky ones as we're all experiencing now, and be miserable about it. Now that's not easy, right? But it will feel better if we can achieve those things. And the data suggests it might actually make us more effective at doing the kind of collective action stuff we really care about. Well, you remind me that, and here I'm reminded of the ways in which I was, I'm embarrassed to say, a lazy uh, undergraduate. Uh, but one of the books that was assigned in my first year undergraduate seminar, Western Views of Humanity, that I actually did finish cover to cover because it was so thin was uh, The Inchiridion uh, by Epictetus, so the handbook by Epictetus. And it's built on this very simple idea, which is that there are things that, and Epictetus uh, was, a, was a Stoic philosopher. So it's based on this idea that there are things that are within your power and things that are not within your power. And for me, much of the happiness that I've achieved in life has been a result of keeping that in mind and just still striving to make my life as good as it can be to try to do what I can to make the world a better and more just place. But for the things that are ultimately outside of my control, not perseverating on them. Uh, and I mean, in many ways, it reminds me of uh, within our field, psychology, um, uh, Albert Ellis's uh, uh, rational emotive uh, therapy, which I think actually did have roots in Stoic uh, philosophy, but that was more a comment uh, than a question. Although if it sparks any uh, thoughts, feel free. No, I think this is, I mean, reading, reading the Anchoridian was like one of the life, I mean, I think it changed my life more than any psychology theory I've ever read. It was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like I can focus on the stuff that's really going to work rather than kind of like throwing my efforts at the stuff that's not going to happen. I mean, it also conditions us that we have, we, even in situations that seem really out of control, we have control over our own thoughts, our opinions about things and so on. Uh, for me, it's been really similar to a, a feature of Buddhist psych- Buddhist um, philosophy or Buddhist religion, this parable of the second arrow, 
Um, so the parable of the second arrow is that Buddha is asking his followers, you know, if you're walking down the street and you're hit with an arrow, is that bad? People say, oh my God, that's terrible. And they say, well, if you're hit with a second arrow, is that worse than just getting hit with the first one? And people say, yeah, you know, two arrows worse than one. And so then Buddha goes on to explain the first arrow is like the crap in life, the like poop happens, right? Like we can't, you know, there's going to be bad stuff. We can't control it. But he claims the second arrow is usually on us. That's the one we stab ourselves with. You know, that's when things are bad that we, you know, double down and get really pissed off about it and yell at our kids and like, you know, be mean to our spouse or like, you know, that's when things are bad in the world that, you know, we don't just get information, but we like incubate in the information and fight with the troll on Twitter and whatever. And so Buddha's like, you can't, you know, you, you can put work in to control the first arrow, but ultimately those arrows are just going to get fired in life. But you, the second arrow is on you. Like you have complete control over that one for the most part. And so take that control to kind of fix things. And so that, that too, kind of like Epictetus and reading Epictetus, that's been a big thing for me. Um, actually I have friends who know the second arrow parable. So when I'm doing something where I'm like stabbing myself with the second arrow, they send me a little arrow emoji and I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> like it was, you know, not enough that my coworker did this dumb thing. I don't need to get all pissed off, you know, like getting put the, the thing that she did was, you know, her fault, but like the arrow is second arrow is my fault. That's the getting annoyed and stuff. So that's been really helpful for me to remember that, you know, you can't, you, you can do certain things to control the circumstances. Ultimately, a lot of that's out of your control, but you can totally control your reaction to it. All, all of what we've been discussing thus far would apply under normal circumstances. But obviously, uh, today, uh, in early June 2020, these are far from normal circumstances in a variety of ways. And going back to the winter, obviously, uh, here in the U.S., we have been uh, facing a pandemic. Going back to even earlier, the world has, has been facing a global uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And Social distancing, or I actually prefer the term physical distancing, uh, because you can still socially connect even when physically you must remain apart. But it can, even with Zoom happy hours and Zoom dance parties, and I'll be sure to invite you to my next Zoom dance party, even though you can connect in those ways, still many people confront uh, loneliness. And so my understanding is you've given some thought recently, at least in the context of the podcast, to how people can achieve and sustain happiness, even under conditions of, lo conditions of loneliness. Briefly, can you share some thoughts there? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the biggest thought is just exactly what you said, which is that what we have to do to protect our physical health is physically distance, not socially distance, right? Um, you know, so the Zoom happy hours and the Zoom you know, dance parties work. But part of it is we need to pay attention to what works because there's no like, you know, playbook of like, you know, these are the things that you can do when you're physically distanced that work. You need to pay attention for you. And, you know, for some, the Zoom dance party might be great. Other people might find it really loneliness inducing and it sucks. But for that person, maybe calling a friend on the old school phone might work better, you know, or like doing a Zoom exercise class might be great. You know, my husband is like upping his like Dungeons and Dragons playing with his old friends from like college, right? You know, that wouldn't be my choice, but it works yeah. for him, right? So I think all of us just need to kind of double down on whatever ways we mindfully notice social connection makes us feel good in this context of physical distancing and that as I said that's going to look different for some folks I, I have one friend who like 
Jess hates Zoom. It's just like really depleting for her. And she like begs, begs, begs. Can we just like go to a park and park far, you know, park six feet apart and don't roll down our windows and just talk. And for her, that's what works. And the key is like, it might be different things, but we just need that right now because all the work suggests, you know, I think there's there's like, it's rare in psychology where everything points in the right direction and all the data agree, but basically all the data agree that like social connection is good for happiness. Like happy people are just more social is what the data suggests. And so many of our little informal moments of connection, whether that's chatting with the barista at the coffee shop or smiling at somebody, you know, on the subway or whatever, all those are gone right now. And so we need to be very intentional about building them in, but there's no like specific playbook. You can pick the stuff that works for you. You just have to make sure you're doing it for yourself. I wonder, and feel free to punt if the answer is no, but I wonder if you would have any advice to policymakers, uh, say to governors, for example, uh, but to anyone who's setting policy that might have ramifications for people's ability to achieve social connection in the time of physical distancing. Yeah, I think finding ways to make it easy for people to do stuff safely is really important, right? I think, you know, people are feeling lonely and really want to get together. And at least in the time we're having this conversation, you know, there's spots in the country that are opening up and, you know, people are packing bars, they're doing all this stuff, because I think it's like all this pent up need for socially, like, like socially connected with people that come out. And so, you know, places that are, for example, you know, putting little circles, spray painting little circles in parks. So people are like, that's your six feet, that's your six feet. So kind of giving people physical cues and nudges to help them realize what's important. I think messaging around why we're doing the social connection can be really powerful. I think this is things that like the, the, the prime minister of New Zealand has done really well, that the messaging isn't about, look, you might not get sick. You like, we need to make the messaging about helping other people. Like, you know, even though it sucks for me not to go to brunch with my friends, like that's how I make sure my mom doesn't die. Right. Right. Like I think setting up the messaging correctly can be really powerful too. So both like, physical nudges and spaces that really work for this stuff. So we don't crowd into spaces that are dangerous, but also the right messaging. So we realize why we're going through this. Um, it's, those, both of those are really powerful. If, if I recall correctly, one of your, well, you've done several episodes recently uh, related to uh, happiness in a time of COVID-19. And if I recall correctly, one of them focused on uh, maintaining relationships and I wonder if you could talk about, uh, I confess I didn't have a chance to listen to that episode, but uh, are there any thoughts based on what you learned in pre- preparing that episode, what you discussed there? Are there any lessons either for people who are in relationships, who are trying to cope together uh, as we go through a pandemic, or uh, for people who are alone and um, eager to find their way into a romantic relationship at a time where no, the normal opportunities for face-to-face dating just aren't there. Yeah, yeah. This was a really fun episode. I talked with uh, Eli Finkel, who's a social psychologist who studies yep. romantic relationships, and he had some great advice. One of the things that resonated with me being, you know, in like stuck in the house with my husband, you know, for the last couple of months is he, he argued that to, to kind of be one of the couples that shines in this crisis. So that was one of the first interesting things he talked about was the fact that you know, if you look at other crises and divorce data and stuff, yes, divorce rates go up, but also marriage rates go up and kind of ch- child re- ch- child rates go up. So birth rates go up, which suggests people are doing things that are you know positive for their relationships during this time. And so his idea is that 
you know, we could go either way with this, right? Like there are some strategies we can use that can make us kind of more in the divorcee camp or more in the like, everything's going well. So oops, a baby happened kind of camp. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things he suggests for the kind of positive side of it is to double down on the things your relationship is good at. You know, he claims that every, every romantic relationship has things that they're kind of awesome at, whether that's like raising the kids or your like sexual health or just like playing games and goofing around together, like taking walks, like everybody has stuff that they like doing together. And this is the time to build that in even more, even if you have to get intentional about it or even creative about it. You know, maybe you're like, you really like going out to experience new things together, like going to museums together. You can't do that now, but can you watch like a Netflix special where you both like documentary where you just both learn something or something. So, so doubling down on the stuff you're good at, and his second piece of advice for those in relationships was kind of like, this is not the time for like the highest possible expectations. You know, like if your husband doesn't load the dishwasher perfectly, like this is a time for a little bit more compassion, right? Like nothing has to be perfect right now, including for yourself. And just kind of making that the new frame can be really powerful for just like giving people the benefit of the doubt when everything's really stressful. Um, the advice I've heard for people who are not in relationships, but are seeking is kind of twofold. One is like, try to get that connection in lots of different domains. Like it's going to be all the more important and intentional for you to try that out like through friends or to your other colleagues or that sort of thing. Um, but also the advice is like, you know, can you find safe ways to explore? You know, many, a lot of people are kind of developing the like, quarantine you know romantic buddy right like yep, where it's yep. like it's not like your boyfriend or girlfriend but like that's the person just during quarantine you're going to just like pretend and have physical intimacy with and whatever and so kind of redefining things for this crazy time is useful too like you don't have to be boyfriend and girlfriend you don't have to be dating you can have a different physical intimacy relationship that's just with one person so it's relatively safe and you kind of agree to kind of certain terms that work for your safety um, but it kind of lets you have some physical intimacy during this time. So shifting from COVID, but still to something related to contemporary events, um, I'll shift with a, a bumper sticker that I have seen on the back of many a Subaru. It's always a Subaru. And it is uh, Bark Less and Wag More. Um, I have never seen that bumper sticker on the back of a car owned by someone who's black. Uh, it's always uh, an upper middle class uh, white person uh, and someone who wants to offer a counterexample can write me. But that bumper sticker for me raises uh, the question of how race relates to happiness. And and it's timely because for very good reason, uh, there's a lot of barking going on right now in the U.S. Uh, regarding racial injustice. I wonder if you know of any research uh, on race and happiness that might either document what we would call uh, main effects of race, so just general differences uh, uh, between racial groups and happiness, or interactions where, let's say, uh, the relationship between income and happiness might look different for different racial groups. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there's, I think there's lots of data on this, and the data are not good for marginalized populations, like particularly African Americans in the country. Um, you know, all the awful statistics about outcomes for African-Americans, like, you know, the fact that, you know, African-American with a PhD is going to get the salary level of like a white person in high school on average, like these kinds of awful statistics, I think play out in happiness domains as well, in, in part because like being the victim of prejudice is itself 
like happiness reducing. And it comes with a whole host of other things that are happiness reducing, right? Like it spikes your stress. Um, I think, I think it's Jennifer Richardson has some lovely data showing that, you know, if you're the victim of discrimination, basically what that does is it ends up spiking your stress hormones in a way that they like stay high, even into the evening where, you know, stress hormones would typically go down. Right. And so like, all the stuff that we know is yucky and anxiety provoking and causes physical changes that reduce our happiness. Those are the kinds of things that African-Americans and people of color are experiencing generally. And I think especially experiencing right now where we're having this conversation in the middle of June, 2020, you know, where we're kind of, you know, like looking in the face, perhaps for the first time, it shouldn't be the first time because it's a legacy of stuff that's been going on forever. um, But really trying to come to terms with, lethal police violence against African-Americans and just all the inequities that have come up that we should have been addressing for a long time. And so, so yeah, I think, you know, prejudice like reduces happiness and there are privileged groups that don't get to experience that very much. And so they can have the bark less wag more bumper stickers. Um, But for those that experience it, you know, I think addressing these kinds of biases is going to be really critical for improving happiness. Uh, give us a sense of what's coming down the pike uh, in the Happiness Lab uh, podcast. Well, kind of very related to your last question, we were planning to do our last two episodes of this season on polarization and bias and what you can do to fight happiness. And those became more nuanced and more urgent <laughs> than ever. Yep. Um, so those are coming up really soon. Um, we're interviewing uh, Jamil Zaki, um, who's a professor at Stanford, who talks a lot about how empathy in general is decreasing. And if we could find ways to kind of bump it up, particularly in the context of this crisis, that we might get closer. So we're talking about some of the work on deep canvassing and ways we can actually like listen and hear marginalized groups through connection, kind of do contact theory right, if you remember the old kind of Gordon Alpert stuff. Um, We're also talking uh, with Dolly Chu about how you can be a better ally um, and how you can, if if you're not a person of color, how you can kind of reduce the threat associated with realizing how privileged you are and that, you know, your identity is like causing some of the strife that other groups are facing. And so I think that these topics are tough. And as I said, they got even tougher (laughs) with everything kind of exploding around us if just to kind of engage with this topic is tough right now. But I think these are really important because ultimately happiness is about our social connection. And if our country is feeling polarized, if different groups are feeling more under threat than others, like we need to address, even people from majority groups need to address that if they're going to really feel happy. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Lori Santos for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on her, her podcast, on some of the research we discussed, and also Jeff Zimmerman's album, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can, if you are a Twitter user, mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a review and or a rating, or you can email at tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. For now, thanks for listening, wash your hands, and be well. <laughs>